Welcome to the Advancing Dentistry Podcast. Join us for in-depth discussions from industry-leading dental experts speaking on hot topics in their specialties. Thank you for listening to our BioLays Advancing Dentistry Podcast. This is Dr. Stephen John, your host for this presentation. This is the second of a two-part series. Our first podcast addressed laser therapy in general and the advantages of laser therapy for both the general dentist and specialist. If you have not already listened to part one, I encourage you to give it a listen. Today's part two podcast is going to go over much more detail on various procedures the water laser is excellent for. We'll venture into discussing why someone would choose a laser over conventional dental instruments. We'll also be discussing at times when conventional dental instruments may be an ideal over the lasers. On our first podcast, we're honored to have Dr. Howard Golan with us to answer some very challenging questions. He was extremely informative. For our part two podcast, we're extremely honored to have Dr. Howard Golan join us again. Dr. Dr. Golan is one of the very first adopters of laser therapy. He has had his, his water laser for over 15 years. He has been an active voice in BioLase's laser treatment protocols and techniques. His knowledge and expertise has been a major influence in establishing treatment protocols. Welcome, Dr. Golan. Hello there. How's it going today? It's wonderful. Thanks for having me back again. Hey, I'm glad. Man, I'll tell you, I'm very honored to have you here again. Uh, Last time we got so much great information from you, and I know I'm going to be tapping your brain out again, so uh, be prepared. So tell you what, let's go ahead and get started right off the bat. What I like to do is talk about an, uh, it's a, a subject, being a periodontist, I'm not as familiar with that maybe you can help and enlighten not only myself but our listeners to pretty much the idea of restorative dentistry and tooth preparation. So most of the listeners out there, the, the restorative doctors, they're used to using their handpiece. So the handpiece, you have kind of that tactile sense. By applying more pressure, you can go ahead and feel that that drill go into the cavity preparation. You can create your line angles. So we're all kind of used to having a tactile sense. The water laser, on the other hand, is a touchless instrument. So the first question I have, I know that all the restorative doctors out there are kind of going to be asking is, how do you get control of the water laser? You know, um, without a, without touching the, the cavity preparation, how deep are you in the cavity preparation? What um, what are the what is? Ex- please explain how the water laser works in that regards. So, in all my years of doing this, it's probably the hardest thing to get over from a learning curve perspective is being able to cut teeth with a laser because you're not touching the tooth and. The, the way a laser cuts, even, even as a, a gum cutter like you, you're not, you don't touch the tooth either. You don't touch the gums. The, the laser only cuts one millimeter away. But because soft tissue is soft, um, you can touch it and then nothing bad's going to happen. But you can't jam that laser into the tooth surface. So it is a, a challenge. But, you know, I, in my training classes, I, I say go back to D1 dental school, you know, first year, you're sitting at that bench on that mannequin and they say, okay, I want you to cut a rectangle, three millimeters by four millimeters by five millimeters deep, but yet I want you to do it through the mirror. And your brain just went, what? 
And it's the same thing. You know, you, you, you learn how to do it. You, you, you have the steps, you get the muscle memory, and you start to understand. You use your senses. Um, I call it the spidey senses, right? It's what we are used to. So, you know, tactile sense can still be had, right? Because you can stop, you can pull out an explorer, you can pull out an instrument, you can touch that tooth as long as you're not firing it. You can gently, and I use the laser tip all the time as a probe where I go in and I'll kind of measure and guide how deep I am. You also have your vision and your eyes, and we're all using loops today, and you can see color change. You can see the difference between the DEJ and the, and the dentin and the enamel, and you know what it looks like, and you know as a clinician what decay is and what it's not. And so it's really not as magical or mystical as one would think. It just takes time. And the hardest part is the actual preparation and how the laser cuts teeth and the technique involved. And it's, it's that. And once you understand how hand motion and angulations and all those things come into play, you can get really quick at it. And, and I am much more precise with a laser cutting teeth than I am with a drill because the drill is going to cut in all different directions. And it's also going to cut further than you want, whereas the laser is only going to cut where you put it, and it's only going to cut to a certain depth, and it's going to stop unless you move your hand. So it's a much safer instrument. It's much kinder to the tooth. It's much kinder to the patient. And, you know, dentists get over it. It's, it's, it's possible to do it. But there's a learning curve like anything else. Right. And you're probably actually a very good point, the idea of, of its ability to do kind of sense fine cutting. Cause I know like with soft tissue is that I can literally remove like, like I say half a millimeter of soft tissue with a laser, just based upon how slow, how far, how close I am. So I think that the, the, the point that you had just made is that your depth or the depth of penetration of laser is dependent upon and upon your, your hand techniques or, or, or how quick or how slowly, how close you are to the preparation. Um, so with that in mind, does it cut extremely fast? I mean, could somebody run into the possibility of creating trauma or damage, or is it yeah pretty much a pretty good control over the uh, the hand piece yeah, um, it, with cavity preparations? It's it. I mean, I have never, you know, and I'll knock on my desk here. I've never in all my years and all the hundreds and thousands of dentists that I've trained, no one's ever called me and say, "Oh my God, you know, I hit the pulp inadvertently." because I, yeah, I use a laser, right? It just doesn't happen because the depth of cut is what you decide it to be. Um, and so it really isn't a very deep cutting instrument, which makes it a very safe instrument, right? And it's, so it's a very precise instrument and you could do a lot of good things with it. Is it as fast as a drill? No. Does it cut metal? No. So, I mean, there are some, you know, we're never getting rid of the handpiece. The handpiece is used all the time. So what I say to dentists who are considering lasers, I use a laser on every single tooth that I prepare in my office, from the smallest little occlusal pit to the largest crown or bridge prep that I do. I use the laser on every single one of them, but I also use the handpiece on every single one of them. And the percentage of which changes based on the size and what I'm trying to do. So for an occlusal pit, it may be 95% laser and 5% drill, and then for a bridge, it may be the opposite. So the handpiece is a tool, the laser is a tool, but there's some wonderful benefits to it. You brought up a very, very, very good point. Thank you very much, which we're kind of 
what stepping into right now is the idea that I think people have a perception that we're just utilizing laser only and everything else on us for our dental instruments are thrown away. So for instance, like, you know, we talk about, about restorations or, uh, or cavity preparations. Um, I think that the idea is that like, there's some preparations that you can utilize the laser more and, um, and, and handpiece less and vice versa. So one of the questions that people have asked me is, are you a, what can you use the laser for in a crown preparation? Yeah, so I mean, obviously, when you're preparing a crown and you're amputating the enamel off a tooth, to sit there and do it with a laser, like I've done it on a bench top, I've done the laser, and, and the fastest prep, crown prep that I can do with the laser on a bench top, full crown on a molar, is about 13 and a half minutes. Okay, so I always said to my students, you know, if I get under 10 minutes, I'll teach you how to do it. I haven't gotten, I haven't gotten there yet. So I, I, you know, don't buy a laser to prep a crown with. Can you do it? Yeah. I, I mean, I had, I had a couple of patients over the years where I had time, they had time, and they were afraid of the drill or for various reasons, believe it or not, they couldn't take the drill. I mean, I had a patient with sensory overload who, who has tremendous, or is tremendously sensitive to vibration, and she can't take the drill, but the laser was a godsend for her because it, it, she handled it much better. Um, so she was like, let's, let's do it. And I'm like, okay, you know, and I had time to do it. And so we played and we had fun and I got it done and, and I used the drill minimally. But in reality, your, most of your preparation is going to be done with the laser, uh, with the drill. But I'll give you a, a prime example, right? So, you know, you're going, you're, you're, you're breaking contact, right? You're, you're cutting between two teeth. Well, you know, I don't want to hit the adjacent tooth. So often what I would do is I will prep up until the contact point, and then I'll use the laser to break through the contact point so I don't hit the adjacent tooth. Because what I don't want to do is destroy the contact and the, the contact profile of the adjacent tooth. So there's an example of where the laser comes in handy. Um, obviously, tissue management around the tooth, troughing and, and gum, gum uh, you know, a periodontal, not periodontal treatment, but, you know, gum contouring around the tooth is is tremendous, obviously, with it. Um, so I will trough with the laser before I go subgingival. And then there's the disinfection part, right? So crack management and, and removal of caries are all done with the laser. So the laser is a huge part of the crown prep process. It's just not the only part. The, the drill is obviously part, is more involved in it. Boy, thanks for clarifying that because I, I, I've had a lot of people say, oh yeah, well, you can't use that at all. I'm thinking, yeah, I believe that you can. And you brought up some very excellent examples of where the laser was actually more ideal than a, than the, uh, the drill. Yeah, I'll give you, I'll give you a story if you don't mind. So yeah, go for I it. Was I was, I was lecturing once in, uh, in, I forgot, I think it was the, uh, the Berkshires in Massachusetts and this pediatric dentist came up to me and said, you know, I've been thinking about the laser, but I don't know if it's worth it. And she's like, you know, I do a lot of zirconia crowns, these preformed zirconia crowns on, on these kids anterior teeth. And I said, oh, that's great, you know, and she goes, but I got a big problem is that when I start prepping the interproximal, it starts to bleed. And then I have to, I have to stop the bleeding in order to cement the crown in. I said, I understand that. I said, you know, would the laser help with stopping the bleeding? And I said, well, I said, the laser is much better at preventing bleeding from ever happening. So why don't you, instead of prepping the contacts with a, dr with a drill, prep them with a laser you won't cause bleeding to the tissue and life would be great. And she's, 
you know, she, she was like, oh, you know, and she didn't think of it that way because we're, you know, I turned it on its head and she thought the laser was only used for the soft tissue, but no, it's actually really good for the hard tissue as well. So that's just another example of, you know, understanding what's possible and, and what can be done. Perfect example because I use it for uh, internal resorption. You know, I'll clap the area, use the laser for that right. and everything I do. And again, minimal bleeding and I can go ahead and get access to the preparation, um, which actually now here's another question. Um, acid etching. So I, I personally will utilize laser on the den to create an edge surface. So the laser, when you do composite restorations, are you able to go ahead and, and, and create that mechanical retention for the composites? probably one of the more popular questions that I get, you know, um, here's the, here's my take on it is that right now there's not enough research to support, um, getting rid of phosphoric acid completely. Do we think it works? I mean, I've done some cases where I have tried it on friends and family and, and knock on again, my desk, it's been fine, but until we have true research to support, uh, not using phosphoric acid etching and laser only, we'll stick with the acid etch. I don't think it's a big deal. But what, what it does do is it does remove the smear layer and it does provide a, a pristine bonding surface so that when you do do your bonding and your adhesion dentistry, um, it becomes, you know, I think a, a better surface substrate to, to do your bonding. Great, thanks. Um, all right, another quick question people tend to come up with is idea of pulpal trauma. So uh, we already talked about the idea. We have a little bit better control about, about not doing too depth of too deep of preparations. But does a laser create pulpal trauma either due to trauma, heat, or anything else like that? So I'd like to see have your answer for that one. Pulpal trauma. So we use I use the laser on pulp capping all the time. So in the proper in the proper um, circumstances, when the nerve is healthy and there's a carious exposure, uh, we will we will attempt to pulp cap teeth and have had very nice success with it. There, in my experience, there's been no pulpal, tra pulpal trauma. Um, in fact, the water cooling and the mechanism of action really does not create a tremendous amount of subsurface heat. In fact, it does decrease pulpal temperature as, as the science has shown. So if I'm deep in a prep, I'm going with a laser over that nerve before I would ever go with a high speed or even a low speed handpiece. Very good point. All right, another kind of controversial subject, which I would love your opinion on, utilizing laser for no anesthesia dentistry. So it's kind of a subject that has come up, and I'd like to see what, you, what your thoughts and opinions are on it. Another controversial subject. Uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> listen, laser dentistry has a lot of wonders and a lot of amazing things that you can do. Uh, I use it for no anesthesia dentistry all the time. Do I, do I not inject? I inject all the time as well. So you pick and choose your cases. Uh, I'm not going to say I have a 100% success rate. I'm not going to tell you I have a 95% success rate. I have a pretty high success rate for those cases that I choose to do it on. And so uh, there are techniques that we can do to help with this no anesthesia concept. We can do some soft tissue work. We can do some hard tissue work. Uh, but as long as you understand how the laser works, you want to be efficient in your cutting, and you can be, and really for me, the key is lowest power possible, right? So you've got to be able to cut as, at, a, at a reasonably low power, and that takes technique. 
Um, so when the technique is, is off and you're at low power, you don't cut very fast. So it's very challenging in that respect. So low power, uh, there are techniques to do. And, and yeah, I mean, we get, I, I do a lot of wonderful things. Do I do it all the time? No. Do I, do I pick and choose my cases and what it works? But I will tell you, there's been a lot of phobic patients that have had wonderful success with the laser because we were able to do some amazing things. So unfortunately, we don't have enough. This is the protocol. Here's how you do it. Go. We just don't have that. Uh, there are some laser companies that claim 100%, 90%. Okay. Uh, I don't believe it, but... You know, I do do it in my own practice, and you really have to understand a lot of factors involved. And, you know, we utilize a lot of different things like nitrous and, and other uh, distraction techniques. Uh, but it is a, it is a, a fairly successful technique and, and one that, that works really well. But I will also say that, it, to me, it's a, it's a long-term process. It's not something that Monday morning after your training class you're going to go and you're going to start doing these things. It really is a step-by-step. -step. It's a walk before, you know, crawl before you walk, before you run kind of thing. Uh, but once you hit it, it's in a wonderful part of your practice. And, and the one part where it's very, very effective is on, is on children and on primary teeth. So that thing is amazing. I mean, I, I try not to inject ch children if I can, and it's a wonderful thing for that. Yeah, that's great. So I think the idea of patient selection is kind of like, you know, we all know that if you have that, uh, the apprehensive patient who's kind of concerned about it, you, you take a probe and you put it on their, uh, on their gums. I think you just gave them a shot. Yeah. You gotta be careful on people like that. Yeah. The patient selection, but it's nice to know that that is an option and which is great. Wonderful for those patients who don't like to get the injections. So thank you very and patient much. Patient selection does not, and patient selection does not mean those type of patients that you're describing. It doesn't work on. It just means you've got to do a little more work to get them to understand what they're going to feel what their process is, because there's the difference between pain and perception. Right. And what you're talking about is perception and pain, and that, that difference is very, very small. Um, we gotta try to make that larger. And there are many ways to do that, um, but it's, it's, those, it can work. Boy, that was excellent, excellent point. So let's go into another subject, kind of somewhat within my realm, um, soft tissue treatments. So one of the wonderful, I mean, I personally feel that one of the most wonderful things about um, the water lays is pretty much the perio aspect of things, the soft tissue. Um, I think it's absolutely great and wonderful. So with that in mind, I know that you utilize your water lays a lot for soft tissue and periodontal applications. And I know that you actually were also one of the major voices in discussing uh, various treatment protocols, various things out bio lays and the comments about how things end up going. So, so I would like to, I'd love to hear your perspective as a restorative doctor on the soft tissue aspect of it. And the areas that you feel that are extremely adaptable to the average restorative doc doctor and the areas that maybe require a little bit more, oh, I guess say expertise or cautious uh, of going into. So real quick regarding your end of it, when you first started utilizing your water lays, um, did you just dive right into it or did you happen to, to kind of pick certain uh, procedures and uh, go slowly? Uh, yeah, it, you know, I'm trying to think back. Uh, my, <laughs> my road was very, you know, when I got into it, it was still a little bit of the bleeding edge as opposed to the cutting edge, right? I mean, it was still early on. Uh, the trainers didn't really get it. You know, they didn't really know how to make the every person 
you know, available for, you know, make it easy for everybody. Um, it was sort of like, go out and do it and, and, and hope for the best. So I, I think that people like you and I have refined our, our techniques over the years and have really been able to take these things to the every, to the every general dentist and not just the techies, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, I start, listen, you got to start slow. I mean, I'm, I, I was, I'm not a, 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 an aggressive practitioner. I don't do a lot of aggressive surgeries and, and periodontal cases. And, and I, I didn't do a lot of open flap cases and, and things like that. So I started slow. I incorporated um, procedures that were successful, that were easy uh, to start with, that, that I had success early on. Uh, things that I could do that I can repeat. Uh, those those are things that I started, and as I, I I found that the laser was successful, and the more you used it, and you see the healing, and the healing potential, and when the patient goes home, and you're like, oh my God, they're going to be swollen because of the flap that I just did with the laser, and then they come back, and they probably didn't even need the antibiotic you gave them. You really start to gain confidence that the laser is going to do a good job for you and, and can really work for you. So it was, just, it was a process, but I mean, I chose things. I tried to choose my cases wisely and, and, you know, there was some, there was some growing pains, but for the most part, uh, developing my perio program in my practice and, and developing my soft tissue management is, it's been a wonderful ride and, and I think very predictable. We obviously, we go over lots of different procedures in the classes to try to get people up to speed and have them comfortable as much as possible. So when we walk in on Monday, um, are there any certain words of advice maybe uh, that you would tend to end up giving them when it comes down towards utilizing it for soft tissue therapy? For instance, like a phrenectomy. Um, you know, we all know that there's some freedoms that are easy and some that aren't. Uh, do you have any sort of recommendations um, at somebody walking out with what they should um approach and the ones that maybe they shouldn't? Well, I think it's our responsibility as trainers to teach somebody how to use a laser for the procedure that they know already know how to do. And if they don't already know how to do it, they need to learn how to do it, right? And why they do it and why it's done conventionally and, and, and all the little machinations and then apply the laser to it. And that, that is one of the challenges, right? So, you know, you use phrenectomy as an example. Uh, some phrenectomies are really, really easy and some are really, really hard. And so I feel it's my responsibility to kind of give that in, in training and say, okay, here's the anatomy here. Here's what we're trying to accomplish. And the laser is just a tool, whether you use a scalpel for it or use a laser, you know, yes, there's going to be differences in the, in the healing and there's going to be, maybe you're not going to suture it uh, like you would with a Z-plasty or a conventional phrenectomy. But if that thing's wrapping around the palate, you know, you're going to have to deal with that maxillary phrenectomy that's going around the palate and you can't just cut the buckle. So, you know, you may not want to get into that as a general practitioner. I certainly, I don't. So, you know, I think, you, you know, I, I try to encourage them to, you know, I'll teach you how to cut soft tissue. You need to learn how to apply that to the phrenectomy. Um, and so we, you know, we, we try to guide them into that. So if we're going to teach them how to do it, we got to teach them how to do it the right way. Having the proper trainer, how to do the uh, the technique, uh, is very important. And there are times, like for instance, we're doing these courses and we're doing the training, then we are kind of going over technique. A lot of times, like some of the techniques are relatively simple, but the more advanced ones, 
uh, or the more advanced um, um, problems, we go over and say this is typically not a, not an easy one to go ahead and do. So I, I completely... right, like and crown lengthening is another example, right? As as a general practitioner, I mean, I can't tell you how many dentists don't know how to do crown lengthening or why they do it or or what's the reason for it or all the different pitfalls that can happen when you're crown lengthening a tooth. So I I try to say, hey, start small, start easy, do a little bone reduction on the buckle, you know, don't go around the line angles, don't don't do too many, you know, don't do two big cases at once. And, and make sure you get success first, and then you can build to the bigger cases. Uh, because it's, it's important that if we're gonna do things, we need to do them well. So the laser is not going to automatically make those decisions for you. You still need to be a dentist and be a clinician. Right, yeah, it's funny when you mentioned that crowning thing, because as you know, is a pretty hot um, subject or hot topic, particularly in fact with periodoscus, you know, there's different types of crown things. Someone may be, hey, I need to get a, a half a millimeter extra length just to get an adequate impression, which is a little bit gingerbread contouring. Another, which you prep all the way down to the to the bone, where you need to get a full-on, you know, um, biologic width exposure and everything else like that. And you know, the people who do our train or do our courses, um, you know, some people are very knowledgeable and they're they're they can work with the with that tool in advance. And other people don't have a don't really quite understand. So I think that that. Uh, you're walking into it with a basic understanding is very, very important. I think that as, um, as you know, that part is that we want to, uh, to train people. We want to get them to a comfort zone, but we also want them to realize there is a limitation of what they're, what they're able to do. Or, or, uh, and and, and the laser community and the BioLase community has been so wonderful in sharing over the years that a lot of what I know um, has really been, I've learned from, periodontists like you and Dr. Lau and, and learning from things at the W the old WCLI meetings and, and, you know, those types of things. And I've incorporated a lot of that into my lectures and my training, because as a general practitioner, there are certain things that I don't know as well as you do. Right. And, and that's your job is to, is to do crown length things on a daily basis. So do I think general dentists can do crown length things? Absolutely. Do I think they should be doing all of them? No. And, and they've got to learn just like endodontics or just like anything. They've got to learn what's, what they should be doing and what they're not. And if they're getting great results and great success, then great. But if they're not, you know, maybe that's something you refer out. But, but as long as you understand what the laser does and how it works, then it's, you know, the dentist's responsibility to decide which case to do and, and not. I got to tell you, there's, there's been many cases where they, I've had a, a chronic referred in and it's like, gosh, if you just had a laser, you could have taken care of this yourself. Another ones right. that people try to venture into is like, boy, I'll tell you, that was a, that was a tough one to go into. So uh, I can yep, completely yep, understand yep. that. Hey, so real quick, we're still on soft tissue applications of it. So one of the, there's a lot of restored doctors out there who do happen to have a diode. And so um, with that in mind is, um, do you, in, in most of our soft tissue applications, do you prefer the water lays over the diode or are there times that maybe you would feel that a diode would be more applicable towards the, uh, the soft tissue problem or defect? I am, I am super biased, right? I mean, I, I, um, I'm a water lays fan. That's just me. Uh, I don't think that the diode has much of a place in my hands in my practice cutting with water and and the building block of life is sort of is sort of my wheelhouse it's sort of what i do and what i want to do and i think that 
it's important for me to maintain that philosophy that I don't want to burn tissue. I don't want to heat it up past the carbonization point. Um, the diode is in my practice. It's there for whitening. It's there for pain relief. It's there for photobiomodulation. And it's there when I need a cauterization, when I need to really, really stop bleeding. That's where my diode is used. But 99% of what I do as a restorative dentist, and even a, a partly surgical dentist, every single day, the water laser is more than adequate uh, for what I, what I do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the same thing. I mean, the water laser is the top thing, but there definitely sometimes like for instance, naphthous ulcer or something of that sort that I'll pull out that diode and, and just kind of wand a little bit. But yeah, I actually glad to have both, uh, both lasers uh, available for me. And you know, the whole idea of dual wave therapy sure is a uh, handy. So here's a question for you. And I've hit this many, many, many times when I've done my training we pull out the pig jaw. We have a we have one of the uh, the dentists go ahead and do a certain type of a procedure, and actually I've got a, my own story about this, which until after I hear from what you have to say. Um, but um, the comments I have heard from people say is, "Gosh, that water lace just took me way too long to to do this. I could have had it done much faster, utilizing the scalpel or the knife." So how would you address that comment statement that you uh, you may end up getting? And by the way, this is working on the pig jaw, not on a patient. <laughs> um, that's very funny. Um, uh, you know, I, I think that it's it's a low, it's a hard question to answer because a couple of things. I, I want to say to them, you don't know what you're doing yet, right? You don't know what you're doing. This is the first time you're picking it up. You, you don't have your meso memory. You don't have your techniques. If I went back to dental school D1 year and I watched your first prep of how long it took you and how many melamine teeth that you had to throw out because you, you know, you, you screwed it up. I mean, and you're asking me, you know, I'm, you're asking me to give you a perfect laser flap and crown lengthening on a pig jaw. So I, I think it's unreasonable expectations is the biggest road to failure for, for laser dentists, right? They, they expect certain things and it doesn't happen right away. And in an instant gratification, it's just not gonna happen, right? It's not like a digital scanner where you put the, you know, you put the wand in and all of a sudden, whoa, it's an impression. You know, that's instant gratification that we all love. It's not like that. You gotta work at it, you gotta learn it. You gotta put the work in. Are we gonna help you? We're we gonna guide you, yes. And the other thing is, is people forget is the pig jaw is not human jaw. <laughs> that the anatomy and the, the, the tissue of a pig jaw is horrific compared to it too, but that's kind of all we have to use. Uh, and they're also dehydrated. And pig, you know, the, the, the pig jaws are dehydrated. They cut slower. The water lease seeks out water. It's the same thing with teeth. Those teeth have been sitting in my, in my backpack in a, in a sterilization bag for a year. There's no water in them. So they're going to cut slower. It's just the way, the way it works. So, you know, it's the same thing. Listen, I mean, you, you know, and I mean, do I think you should be using, you know, I think the scalpel should be used minimal in a, in a, in a surgical practice that has the water lace, but I get it. I mean, people want to go faster and, and they feel more comfortable and, you know, so I can't, I can't take everything out of their hands that quickly, but if you, if you stick to the program and if you, if you look at the outcomes and you look at the healing and you look at the, of what the patient feels afterwards, that little extra time that you may actually spend is going to be worth it. 
you had made comment last time. Again, I hope everybody listens to the uh, first podcast that one of the advantages, one of the most wonderful thing about the, your waterways laser is number one is less bleeding and better visualization. So it's interesting because I was, when I was doing my training, um, I was doing a phrenectomy and Dr. Lau had asked me and we we're a group of 20 people. He goes, so Steve, what do you think about this, uh, about the phrenectomy? And I was a cocky son of a gun. And I said, oh, I could have had this done much faster with the scalpel. His comment to me is Monday morning, I want you to do a phrenectomy and I want you to call me afterwards. I, I figured, well, what the heck? Sure enough, Monday morning, I had a phrenectomy, went in there. And granted, it took me a little while longer to do the actual incisions with the scalpel, but I had less bleeding, better visualization, and I didn't have to suture it up. So that alone made this so much better. And then, and then finding out afterwards how the patient did, no, no, I should say minimal discomfort. I called him back and I said, gee, Sam, I have to say, I apologize. I even made that comment in front of all those people because all they heard was- He loves was, when you apologize, right? Yeah, I know. <laughs> but <laughs> the key is, is that he was so cool about it by saying, come Monday morning, right. work on a patient. So I think that the idea is, is that anything soft tissue, it's going to take more time than a scalpel or a knife, but your end results can be better and you're going to have far less bleeding for it, which I think is why it's great for the average restorative doctor. Um, well, look, so we're, we're creatures of habit, right? I don't mm -hmm. care if you're a periodontist, oral surgeon, general dentist, we're creatures of habit. We like to do what we do. Yep. Anytime we need to change our technique or bring in a new instrumentation or, or just anything different, it throws our equilibrium into a tizzy for a little bit. And we don't like that. So, but you lose perspective of where you're spending your time, right? Oh, I can get this done better with the drill. Well, like today, I had a patient with uh, the lingual of 28, had a massive lingual, not a massive, but a very large lingual cavity, but it was about three millimeters subgingival, right? Now, I had a lot of tissue on the lingual, so I, you know, now if I did a scalpel and a burr, the bleeding and the mess that I would have created would have, all of that time to stop that and packing cord and, I just took the laser and literally within two minutes, I, I was ready to go with my bond. The whole thing was done in two minutes. I, I got a gingivectomy out of it, a cavity prep out of it. I was done with the patient in 10 minutes and she's paying her bill. And she's like, this is what I paid for. It took 10 minutes. I said, well, <laughs> you know, if you want me to do it conventionally, I'll charge you the same, but it's not going to be as fun or quick. So yeah. You know, you got to look at you got to look at what the perspective is, what you're trading off in, in good and bad. So, as so true, what you give up on, what what you lose on one, you gain probably twofold in another. All right, right. let's go a little bit further into this. So, regarding periodontal therapy, um, we all know that the average restorative doctor, you know. Some, some feel very comfortable doing skin root planning. Most refer to the dental hygienist, which I could totally understand. Some will go ahead and feel a little bit comfortable doing some soft tissues, maybe in a minimal flap type of type of procedure. So there are sometimes an early period defect that ultimately needs to be addressed. And um, the skin root plane didn't quite, quite end up getting to it or didn't quite end up doing the therapy with it. So we know that that um, we have repair, which is basically a minimally invasive type of procedure. Um, my feeling is that even with repair, you should get some some sort of visualization. So what is your feeling regarding the idea of a restorative doctors? Or can you provide a little bit of confidence that, you know, these simple pair of defects, maybe don't be as afraid of them um, as, as maybe some people are. Do you have a feeling or comment on that? 
Well, you know the answer to that. I do have a feeling or comment. Uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> no, I do. <laughs> yeah. So, so I've been very passionate about general dentists and laser perio for a very, very long time. I think that we as general dentists undertreat it periodontal disease. I think that we are poorly educated on periodontal disease. I think that we uh, don't do it right when we do treat it. And we just kind of throw belt and suspenders at things and we don't really understand the mechanism of periodontal disease. And so when I teach laser dentists, I, I, I spend a lot of time on perio. And my philosophy is, is that general dentists should be treating, all dental dentists should be treating perio. I think you know, there's probably 75 to 85% of patients in this country have some, even an isolated pocket, have some sort of, you know, four millimeter bleeding, five millimeter pocket in, the, in their mouth that can be treated. That being said, uh, I think that the general dentists are just one member of the team. And I, I, I use the term treat general, refer specific. Um, and so what that means is, as a general practitioner, I'm going to treat the mouth. I'm going to do as much as I can to get that generalized periodontal disease better and those areas that don't respond to traditional SRP, scaling and root planing, or basic laser therapy can then get some advanced therapy or referred out to my periodontal specialist to uh, treat the specific areas. Maybe it needs a bone graft, a frication procedure, something like that. Um, so I'm a big believer in that. I, I think that you as periodontists are much more productive doing implants and doing connective tissue grafts and, and you know, tunneling procedures and, and all of those bone grafting and, and guided tissue regeneration. And I'll, I'll handle the, the pocket reduction, uh, you know, and, and so that, that's sort of how I look at it. So I'm pretty, pretty passionate about that, that general dentists need to learn perio, need to get good at it, uh, and then decide how far they want to take it and then refer out to, the, to their specialists for the things that they don't think they can handle. See, and I got to tell you, I completely agree with that. So I do feel there's a lot of perio that's out there, this early perio, these, you know, like, like four or five, maybe even like a little, little like six millimeter pocket that, that the average, you know, dentist says, oh, let's just watch this. They haven't maybe quite gotten into a lot of separation, a lot of bleeding or something of that sort, but they're just not healthy pockets. And honest truth is, is that these early intervention of these perio defects with maybe some sort of a, like a laser, laser therapy would go ahead and stabilize these defects or maybe even treat the defects and prevent them from ultimately having to be referred to me for more or less advanced therapy. So I think that the early diagnosis, early intervention is just is important for the, for the average restored doctor. And it's not just scaling a root planing, but just minor periodontal um, surgical procedures. And on a lot of times people will tell me, well, I'm afraid to flap it in an area. So, I mean, I'm sure that you know, and I like your comments about it, the idea of flapping an area, you know, we all think about the idea of flapping as a full on mucogingival offices surgery where the flaps are going ear to ear and not all defects need to be flapped that far. So do you do much flaps uh, procedures in your, in your office? And to what extent do you do it? Yeah, I, I, I try. I mean, I enjoy doing flaps with a laser. I think that, you know, a lot of them don't have to be sutured. I think you can do it with, you know, I do a lot, I use a lot of cyanoacrylate, you know, I'm a, I'm a big believer in not suturing. I think suturing is bad uh, as much as, you know, unless you really have to, uh, I think you can reapproximate tissue very well, you know, if there's no tension on it. 
Um, I think you should, you know, if for these basic, you know, we do a lot of, you know, I do a lot of hybrid cases where I may do some clothes flap in one area and then, and then open up a papilla in another area. It's a very general procedure. And, and what's nice about the laser is it's, it's a wonderful, it's a very minimally invasive instrument and, and it doesn't, where you kind of put the tissues where it stays. So, uh, you know, general dentists should not be afraid to flap with a laser. Now, obviously there are you know, the caveat set, there's the symbiotypes in the anterior areas, which listen, I get it. Like when I, when, when a patient needs, you know, when I'm doing the cosmetic case and they need six to 11, you know, crown lengthening with full flaps. I mean, I, I have no desire to do that. I mean, that's just something that a specialist does a heck of a lot better than I do and, or want to do. I, I have no desire. I don't do connective tissue grass. I don't do those kinds of things, but, but basic general perio five, six millimeter pocket pocket reduction, I mean, that's, that's, that's a wheelhouse procedure for me every day. Yeah. And one of the things I, as you do, and I do is that, you know, whenever we happen to have a doctor going through training, if we happen to be in a large group of people or even like a one-on-one, we go over cases. We talk about the idea of different types of cases. And we talk about the ones like, this is good to do. This one maybe isn't as good to do. So, so the nice thing about, but I think that in, in people in the doctor's training, especially with bio is that we do give kind of a, a guidance of maybe what what people could venture to. And truthfully, I'm sure you do too. I evaluate the doctor regarding what their knowledge is and also their abilities are. And I'll kind of help micro, I guess, say, instruct them on what cases are good and what cases aren't good. So let's go into another hot topic subject. I know that you are kind of passionate about this one, the periimplantitis. Um, basically the early and kind of advanced interventions of things of that sort. So one of the things on periimplantitis, we happen to have what we call the alien and failing implants. Like Dr. Lau was one that kind of, kind of really kind of pushed this. The idea of the alien implants is the early types of, of issues and problems. The failing implants is, is more or less advanced bone loss, things of that sort too. Um, Dr. Lau and I did an entire podcast series on this on the subject that we kind of went over and covered a lot of this stuff. But I, I really do feel that the average restorative doctor's role in this is important, particularly the fact of early detection. So I think that it's really, really, really important that when we have implants are starting to show problems, um, the alien implant, that the restorative doctor not only has to be able to diagnose it properly, but ultimately how to do early intervention treatment and, and therapy. And I know that you that you are passionate about this also. So I would love to hear your view on one. Number one is early detection um, of periimplantitis and treatment of the, of the cases. And then truthfully, as we get into more advanced therapy, what you're comfortable with. Yeah, I think it's a big problem. I don't think it's going away anytime soon. I think it's only getting worse. I think as more and more people put implants in, uh, I think it's just, it's inevitable we're going to have to deal with this. And, and, you know, I'm passionate about it because when an implant, you know, when a crown fails, you redo the crown. It's a $55 lab bill, $1,000, you know, $200 lab bill. When an implant fails and that patient's paid 6000 bucks for it, that's a big problem. So... I think it's very important that this is all part of it. So, yeah, I, you know, I, I want to preface by saying that I think prevention is, is really important. And I think there are some known ways to prevent periimplantitis. And, you know, one of them is, and, and so one of the things that I'm very passionate about is connected is keratinized tissue or at least non-movable tissue around implants. Um, I can't tell you, I mean, you probably see it too, but I, I can't tell you how many times I get an implant from a surgeon 
and there's no keratinized tissue around it. And I'm just like, really? You know, I, I couldn't, I can't believe it because we know that those things, that, that's one of the clear factors that is a problem. So I, I, I teach uh, very much that my restorative dentist should be doing a lot of their stage twos, um, their implant recoveries, because especially I teach the roll technique the buckle roll technique, you know, that palatal incision and push the, the buckle, t the, the palatal tissue forward. So you guaranteed uh, a nice zone of attached tissue. And I think that we should be doing those all the time. I think the other thing is guided surgery and making sure that the implants are placed properly in enough bone in the center of the bone, you know, as much as you can. Um, because I, you know, when, when those are, when there's not enough blood supply, there's a problem, right? So those two things I'm very passionate about. Um, but in terms of treating an already failing or failing implant, yeah, I mean, the only thing I will say is that I believe that those cases need to be flapped. I do not think you can do this closed flap. I think that in order for a, a true peri-implantitis case to work, and, you know, please tell me if you disagree, that every little piece of granulation tissue needs to be off that implant and no bone or anything is going to stick to it if you don't and if you can't see that there's no way the laser is going to do that closed flap you got to see it you got to flap it back you got to clean that defect out i've heard multiple practitioners on the lecture circuit talk about that uh anybody i just don't think you can do that closed flap but other than that i think in smaller cases where you feel that you can do it as a general practitioner i, I have no problem with it but, you know, it's a problem. And I think general practitioners need to learn how to deal with it because not every patient's going to want to go to the specialist. They're going to want to stay in the office. And I would rather them being treated than, than not being treated. Um, but I think flapping is an important part of this. That's just my two cents. And actually, again, with the defects, if there's any sort of bone loss around the area, especially with the fact of, of threads exposed, and a particular fact of how long the defects have been present, you've got to get visual access to it. You're, you really do. So but do you think, I mean, do you think that a, a, a implant with threads exposed or bone loss from threads subgingival can be done closed flap? Do you think you, no. No. And the main, the main reason why is, is primarily, if you look at the angulation, okay. If you look at the angulation of the crown, because most crowns cannot be removed. And even if you did remove the crown and if you have a straight line access to around the implant itself, you know, is it if you're you have no idea what's on that implant, if it's basically just bacteria, stop deposits, it's fairly easy to remove with a laser. But you don't know if you happen to have a hard, hard deposits and to what extent you end up having it. So and we're not necessarily talking about full on flap by, by pulling it from ear to ear, even, even a minimal flap reflection right. just for visualization. Right is 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 very important if you have a crown and truthfully if you have a crown around an implant and you can't take the crown off or not willing to take the crown off you've got to get it out of there because you can't even probe those things well um, i i i am very adamant about i will not do a peri-implantitis case unless the crown comes off right so right. you know if i have a patient that comes in with a custom abutment i'm turning that if i can i'm turning that into a screw retained crown and i'm uh, i try to screw retain every single case um, that's just me. I've always done it for 25, 23 years now. I've, that's just the way I was taught. Uh, I think cement's a problem. It's not the only problem, but it's a big problem. Mm -hmm. And that has to come off because you got to, you got to be able to let this thing heal. And, you know, I mean, I've been known to take crowns off 
bury the implant and let the soft tissue cover over it and then restage to it to create attached tissue because there just no, there are no non-starters for me. You know, there are deal breakers for me and no keratinized tissue and not being able to take the crown off to treat a failing or ailing implant. It's just not going to work. That's yeah. just me. So I know sometimes you don't have that choice when somebody is referred to you, but, you know, I get it. But I think the idea is that, like you said, as a restorative doctor, your patients, you're going to find, you're going to do the early detection. The dental hygienist, as they're doing the maintenance, can do the early detection. I mean, there are times like, for instance, if you, if I mean, which I see a lot of is the average um, hygiene, hygienist has a patient in there, they're doing, they have an implant, they're doing some skin around there. And notice that the pocket starts to have a more bleeding, maybe a little bit more plaque buildup than they had before. Uh, maybe a slight little bit amount of exudate around it. And I know that a lot of times people would say, oh, well, it's just a little bit irritated. No big deal. We'll just go ahead and watch it. So, so what is, what's your thoughts? I mean, are these cases that we, we should just go ahead and be a little bit more aggressive with or what's your thoughts with that? That's a great, that's a great question. I don't know the answer to that. I I think it's really just your spidey sense and, and what you think. I mean, listen, there's going to be larger pocketing around implants because the soft right. tissue connection stinks to an implant compared to a tooth. There's no Sharpie fibers. There's no, there's, you know, you're going to stick that probe deeper. The question is, you know, how resilient is the patient? If a patient has a significant history of periodontal problems, then they're going to have periodontal problems with the implant. And so I might be more aggressive. If I have a patient that fractured a tooth and their gums are perfect, you know, I may not be as aggressive with a five millimeter non-bleeding pocket around an implant. So it really depends on the patient and the history. I may, I may load them with tremendous anti-inflammatories, you know, high doses of fish oil or, or those kinds of things. We've, we've done a lot of green tea extract um, because that's been shown to be really good. So, you know, we may have to use other adjuncts uh, we use a product called the Hydrofloss, which is a brilliant, brilliant product that, that we use to help irrigate those areas. Um, and sometimes we do prophylactic laser debridements where the patient will come in on every three months when they're coming in for their maintenance. We'll just stick the laser down there as a prophylactic measure just to keep the bacteria counts down in a patient who's a little more high risk. So I think you need to tailor your decision-making, not just to what you see, but also the history of the patient and, and sort of what their, what their risk factors are. So when you mentioned the idea of utilizing the laser, would you utilize your water laser or would you even yeah. consider the idea of a diode at all? If, if it's a not, if you're not using in States where you can, where the hygienist can use the diode, I think a non-initiated tip with a little bit of bacterial reduction is fine. Um, I think for me, I think the water lace is better because I think it goes down deeper and you could do it a little more minimally invasively, right. but it's not always conducive in a practice to have the dentist stop what they're doing and go into there and do it. Uh, so if, if you can build it in, you, you do it, but I'm okay with a diode in that case. I just think you got to be very careful with the heat around an implant with the diode. Very good point. Yeah, so I wouldn't good. initiate it. I wouldn't start curatizing with a, with a, if I was going to curatage the pocket, around the implant, then the water lace would be my only choice. Right. Yeah. Those are all great points to end up bringing up because I think the idea is like not one treatment or therapy for every patient actually ends up, ends up working. You may have to look into different types of treatments and therapy. Uh, the other part of it is that I got to tell you that, that in the past, I was one of those people that like a little bit of bleeding, a little bit of separation. Oh, it's no big deal. And I've 
you know, changed my, my, my view, my attitude. I now feel that we need to be a little more be aggressive on these early types of uh, alien implants or the early types of intervention, just so that they don't end up becoming a lot worse. Right. But also there's the economic factor and it's, right. you know, you know, what are you charging the patient for this? What is it? You know, insurances, especially in New York, don't even know what we're doing. Don't care what we're doing. They're not going to pay for a, a, for me to go in for 10 minutes and treat a pocket. It's just, it's, it's a difficult spot for some practices. So you have to kind of figure out what your implant maintenance schedule is going to be and, you know, figure out what's the best plan. But the laser, the water laser is perfect for this type of a treatment. And as long as we get back to that, that's what makes sense to me. Right. Right. Total, in total agreement. Total agreement with that. So we basically kind of touched on a base on a number of different types of procedures. We didn't go into a lot of detail about each one of them. Uh, maybe in the future, you and I can have uh, conversations regarding far more detail on each of the procedures. Uh, in general, um, is there anything else that you would like to kind of get across to the uh, listeners out there regarding the idea of the restorative doctor and uh, the use of the uh, water laser? I just think that it's, it's an important, it's a indispensable part of my practice. It's something that if it's not near me, if it's not on next to me, uh, it is, it, I feel like I'm not prepared to treat that patient. That it, it needs to be part, as what I like to say, it needs to be part of my tray setup. It needs to be, be on and ready to go with a tip in place so that I can pick it up whenever I need it because it's invariably going to be used in almost every procedure that I'm doing in the patient's mouth, whether it's periodontal or cosmetic or restorative or oral surgery or pediatric the laser impacts all areas of it. And obviously we don't have time to go into every single thing, but it's an amazing product. It's a, it, it really changes a, a dentist's life because, you know, and, and the, other, the other factor of it is the economic factor of it is, you know, especially the perio part of it, you know, patients are seeking us out for this now, right? They're looking at us, right? They want to save their teeth. They know how much an implant costs and, we get cons consultations and, and inquiries about saving teeth and laser teeth all the time. Um, and even if we can't save it, bringing those patients into the door is, is a value. And it could be end up as an implant case, or it could be end up as crown and bridge case. Uh, so there is that return on investment that from a dentist perspective, you know, that you balance those two things, the clinical and the, and the investment of it and it, it it's really a, an amazing opportunity oh yeah and and granted we may be biased of <laughs> the fact of uh, the advantages of the water lace honest truth is is that you know i wish that every period honest including my colleagues right around the corner from me who you could say are my competitors which i don't think that they're competitors at all I wish everybody happened to pick one up. I just find such an advantage of this over my uh, traditional therapy that I used to do. Uh, and I really do wish that, uh, that everybody out there uh, saw the advantages of it that you and I both end up, end up seeing. Um, I think the, key, the part that's come out of the tonight's um, or today's uh, discussion is pretty much the fact of proper training. I think that you and I both agree the fact that, you know, the water laser is a tool. And so in order to get a good end result, you really have to have proper training on not only how to use the laser itself, but also how to, how to learn about doing the techniques. I mean, you agree? But you remember, well, you remember when you first got it, that you were like, 
<laughs> what the heck is this thing and how am I going to make this work? And it's so outside my comfort zone and what I'm used to. Yeah. And now you're looking at it like, this is easy. Like right. it's, it's really hard to screw this up. I mean, right. it's a very safe <laughs> laser. You know, it's not like a diode where you're going to burn somebody. It's a very safe instrument. It cuts with water, the building block of life. Right. And so getting doctors over the intimidation factor is really, really important is that the learning curve isn't as crazy as you might think. And it's really just about working and, and working the program, setting goals for yourself and deciding, you know, what procedures you want to start with and then slowly continue your education, right? Learn from, learn from that first course, but then keep learning. We, you and I learn every day when we get in front of each other and we learn from our colleagues uh, and it's just, it, it's a constant process. And, and the global reach of laser dentistry is so much higher than it is here in the U.S. that they're just doing amazing stuff across the pond uh, from what we do here that there's so much to learn and so much for us to incorporate uh, that, you know, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful frontier, that's for sure. Yeah, and our, I think your point being especially our education doesn't stop with your purchase. It continues to go. I can't tell you how many procedures that I've uh, – I dove into that I wasn't quote comfortable with. And I realized, why didn't I just do all these before? So I get that. Yeah. Dr. Golan, thank you very, very much for all your time and your insight. We're done? No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe, I don't know. We can talk about the weather. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for all your information. Really, really, really do appreciate it. Um, hey, everyone, we will be doing more of these BioLays Advancing Dentistry podcasts in the future. Uh, we have a lot of uh, very uh, interesting subjects uh, that we're working on, and hopefully you'll be able to join us for some future um, podcasts. So stay tuned, and until then, cheers, everybody. Thanks, Dr. Golan. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us for another Advancing Dentistry podcast. Opinions expressed are those of individual doctors and do not necessarily represent BioLace. Please refer to your individual state governing bodies for laws pertaining to laser usage. To learn more about WaterLace, all tissue, and Epic Diode Laser technology, visit BioLace.com forward slash podcast.